0: You are listening to the future of asia podcast by mckinsey and company i am oliver tonby your host and chairman of mckinsey asia in this series we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces the opportunities and the challenges that are shaping the future of asia welcome welcome everyone to the future of asia podcast series Today's topic is how McKinsey built a world-class AI sailor bot with Emirates Team New Zealand. I am joined by three esteemed colleagues. I'm joined by Ollie Fleming. He is the COO of Quantum Black in Australia. Quantum Black is McKinsey's advanced analytics and machine learning firm. I am joined by Helen Mayhew. She's the COO of Quantum Black in Europe. Uh, she's also a partner with the firm. And she happens to be a world champion sailor as well. I am also joined by Nicholas Hahn, a senior expert with Quantum Black out of Melbourne. Welcome all. Now, I'm going to start straight away, Ollie, with a question to you, which is McKinsey and sailing. That doesn't seem like what we normally do. So why, why are we doing this in the first place?
1: Well, great question. And firstly, I mean, I'm Quantum Black born and bred and Quantum Black's heritage is actually in Formula One racing. So there's actually quite a, a natural link between this work and Quantum Black. But more broadly, elite performance in sport is where new technologies is approved out. And this opportunity allowed us to do highly relevant
0: R&D in an application called Deep Reinforcement Learning. Perfect. Thank you. Nicholas and, and Helen, let me ask each of you now, this must have been quite a bit different type of project to be doing with the firm. So, you know, just tell us some cool episodes that you've been part of over the last few months. Helen.
2: I think one of the coolest episodes for me is when we built the bot, one of the unexpected consequences is that actually the majority of the time it outperformed the elite sailors. And the elite sailors were fascinated by this, and it actually helped them improve their performance as they learned from the bots. So I think a nice kind of synergy of human intelligence and machine learning coming together.
0: Meaning as a former world champion in sailing, you're, you're happy you got out of the game in time. <laughs> Is that what you're saying?
2: I'm not sure I'd quite say this, but it's definitely a game changer when you can start to learn from technology in this way.
0: There you go. Nicholas.
3: For me, one one really cool moment was at the beginning of the project when we actually got to go to New Zealand for the unveiling of the first boat. Those boats had been in the making for two years, and no one knew whether those boats would actually sail and fall properly. And being there for the first time when the boat actually was was absolutely magical.
0: Excellent. Welcome, all three of you. Now, Let's dig in. But I do think it's useful for our listeners just to understand who wants to explain what is America's Cup?
2: I'll go a bit on uh, what's the America's Cup. The America's Cup is the most prestigious race in sailing, and it's one of the oldest sporting trophies in the world. It was first held in uh, the Isle of Wight just off the south coast of England in about eighteen. 18- 51, and from the beginning was a real beacon of innovation. So even in that very first series, the winner, which was a boat called America, introduced what was quite radical innovation at the time, changing their sails from hemp to being made of cotton. And to this day, it's a hugely innovative competition where the design and the build of the boat is as critical as the sailing itself, much like Formula One, where the race doesn't begin on race day, it begins with the development of the car. And in this instance, um, the parameters of the boat design, which are known as the class rules, were first published in March 2018. And from then, until the racing actually starts on the water itself, the race is really one of innovation to build the fastest boat possible. And that's where we helped Emirates Team New Zealand.
0: I understand. And say a little bit more about, you know, the competition. So who's now in the final? How do they get there? Just explain a little bit to those of us that haven't been following this as closely.
2: Absolutely. So the finals are a one-on-one race between Emirates and Team New Zealand, who's the defender of the America's Cup. And the challenger who has won the right to challenge them, and that is an Italian boat called Team Prada Pirelli. In order to get to that position, uh, the Italian boat had to beat off the British and the Americans. So there were four boats originally in the competition, and now there are two that remain, and they will be in the finals against one another.
0: And for those of us that think of boats as, you know, small little dinghies that, you know, we row, these are in a slightly different league, if and you're talking about four boats globally.
2: Yeah, so these aren't typical boats. They travel upwards of 100 kilometers an hour. Uh, they have hydrofoils, which means that they don't really sail on the water. They're, in fact, lifted about a meter or two above the water as they, they as they go. They have sophisticated onboard computing, uh, hundreds of IoT sensors. So in some ways, they're really like low altitude aircraft, not boats at all. In the context of how important the America's Cup is to the sailors who are a part of it, In the British team, the British team is headed by a guy called Sir Ben Ainsley, who is one of the most celebrated Olympians of all time. So he has five Olympic medals, four of them gold. And he's gone on record in this America's Cup saying he would give up all five of those medals if he could take the America's Cup back home to Britain, which he won't be able to do this time, unfortunately. But just to give you a sense of what this means to the people who are competing.
0: Superb, superb. Ali, let me me turn to you and ask you, can you explain a little bit what McKinsey actually did with Emirates to Team New Zealand? Yeah, well, we've been their official technology partner.
1: And as part of that, we actually helped them focus on their two biggest areas of vulnerability that they saw coming into the campaign. The first was ensuring that these insanely complex 75-foot hydrofoiling monoholes were ready for sailing. They had as much uptime as possible. So working on the maintenance and reliability. But the, the area we're talking about today was helping them optimize the design of their hydrofoils. As Helen said before, the class rules, the, you know, the parameters of the, of the boat design are fixed, but there are parts of the boat design which there's quite a lot of space for the teams um, to be creative in the design of. And the hydrofoils are a particular area where the teams are able to become quite creative.
0: So say a little bit more about about, this hydrofoil. So what is it that the team would be looking at changing? And how would this be done in the old way versus the new way? One of the important rules that has
1: changed uh, in this America's Cup is that all of the design of the boats has to happen in a digital simulator. Previously, teams could build mock-up boats, miniature boats, and pull them through tow tanks, To understand uh, their performance and help iterate through designs. They also use wind tunnels. For this campaign, that's all been banned and all teams need to use digital simulation. This is an area that Team New Zealand have pioneered and continue to lead. But there are some limitations to using the simulator. You need to take multiple Olympic athletes away from sailing on water and other forms of training and actually get them to sit physically in the simulator and do laps so the design team can evaluate the relative performance of of different designs. And the sailors themselves are also not completely consistent. So they all control the boat slightly differently, which means they introduce noise into the data. And this means, one, there's a huge bottleneck for the design team to um, to have to work through to actually schedule the, the sailors to get into the simulator to do laps. But also the marginal gains in performance that the team is hunting for And in the case of the hydrofoil, maybe changing certain section, the length and the depth, it means some of that performance can actually be masked by the scatter of human testing. So we set out on a highly ambitious and super exciting project to essentially take the humans out of the loop for a large part. And by deploying a nascent frontier technique called deep reinforcement learning, we were essentially able to build an autopilot, an AI agent that was able to sail the optimal lap
0: automatically in the simulator. What you're trying to do, if I understand, is you're trying to actually build a bot and train that bot to perform better than an Olympic sailor.
1: The actual criteria was as good as an Olympic sailor. And the reason for that is that these marginal gains that the team are looking for, and at the end of the campaign, they're literally looking for tenths of a second in a 30-minute race. We needed to bot- to build a bot that could perform right at the limit so that they were able to compare um, two different designs at, at race
0: pace. I would suggest that the answer to the question is yes. <laughs>
2: <Sorry>. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, to perform more consistently than an Olympic sailor, but also to perform endlessly. So, you know, Olympic sailors have to eat and sleep and go to the gym and do all sorts of other inconvenient things. So <laughs> the ability to take that out of the equation is critical.
0: wow, ah. oh, got it. understand. understand. You, you said the words deep reinforce reinforcement learning. Nicholas, can you explain a little bit about what, what is that?
3: Sure. So w- when you think about AI in general and the different types of models that a data scientist would use to solve a problem. You have more, more traditional uh, models like predictive analytics and uh, descriptive analytics. And reinforcement learning is a new type of models, which was very much developed and proved to work in the last maybe five years, mostly in video games, actually, because video games offer a very good uh, training grant for academics to try things and see what works in a very controlled environment. And we decided to use this same technique here. One good analogy is think of a system that really learns with no prior knowledge, just with trial and errors. So imagine us as humans, uh, when we were toddlers, trying to learn to walk you stand up, you take one step and you fall because you haven't understood gravity whatsoever. And then you try again and you fall a little bit less and slowly but surely you manage to learn to walk and and then you can run. And so here the reinforcement learning algorithm does the same thing in sailing where starting from knowing absolutely nothing about sailing Slowly but surely, it learns what works. It learns what doesn't work, and tends towards that uh, that optimal control that enables it to be as good as the sailors.
0: And Nicholas, in this case, how long did it take the bot to learn to sail first, sail like a normal human being, I guess, and then to sail like a, a, an Olympic uh, sailor?
3: So all in all, it, it took us about a year to build that system that could ultimately be as performant as the Olympic sailors. In practice, what happens is you start by teaching the bot to do very simple things like just sailing a straight line with no wind and no waves. Try to do that well. Once you master that, then you add the waves and the wind. And slowly then you add maybe maneuvers like attack or a jibe and make sure the bot is still very, uh, very performant. For a long time, I would say we were maybe, I don't know, 98% as good as the sailors. And it took us maybe another month or two at the end to just really break that barrier and get to a hundred percent or maybe a bit more. And all in all, like once all that development is done, the bot itself, when it's given a new design and trying to learn how to sell it, that just happens overnight. But it can happen over a short period of time because it's doing that in parallel, maybe over a thousand computers in the cloud. And so it's managing all those different experiments together to get all the right selling experiences to ultimately gain all the knowledge it needs over a short period of time to to be as good as the sailors.
0: So, Helen, we heard it it took Nicholas and team a year to build olympic level sailor how long did it take you to win the the world championship
2: oh i think i won my first when i was 16 so
0: (laughs) Oh, all right there you go that's pretty early that's pretty good by the way asia's standing in the world has changed and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise the reality is now all about how asia will lead Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Listen, joke, joking aside, I want to get back to Ali and, and ask you, what, what are some of the challenges in building this AI simulator bot?
1: Goodness me, I mean, there's a huge infrastructure orchestration component of it. This, is, this couldn't be done without the cloud. Okay, Nick just mentioned we needed to take Team New Zealand Simulator and run it in parallel up to a thousand different times in the cloud to generate enough learning for the bot. So huge technical challenge to achieve this. And uh, I was privileged to work alongside uh, Nick and a large global quantum black team that managed to stand that up. So that would be the first one, sort of getting the plumbing in place, I think was huge. The second, not so much of a challenge, but it was an exciting piece of, of really needing to work super closely and integrated with Team New Zealand both in terms of their designers, you know, the hydrodynamicists, their own software engineers, but equally the sailors, um, so that we could build trust in a really new area from the outset. You know, at the beginning, when the sailors used to come down to the simulator, they used to love beating the computer. But over time, as the performance improved, they'd also built their trust along the way. So I thought that was, that was a very exciting element of it. And then another one, it's not just ourselves on this project. When COVID hit, you know, we went from a team that was broadly co-located in Sydney with a client in New Zealand to almost overnight that large technical team being fragmented across London, Germany, Montreal, Melbourne, Sydney, and then our our client in in Auckland. So I know it's not unique to this to this specific project, but it was a it was a challenge that we had to overcome.
0: Thank you, Ollie. I, I want to go to Helen, because you know, you've been talking a lot as a sailor, but you are also a partner and the COO of Quantum Black in Europe. So you do know a little bit about the, the AI and the machine learning behind this as well. I would assume that you know for a, a company or a team that's trying to build this, you need a certain type of skill sets at your disposal, so to speak. So tell us a little bit about what kind of skills do we had? Did we have inside of the of the team here, the Quantum Black team?
2: So. Within Quantum Black, we've got a deep bench of technical people. So that ranges from data architects who will set up data architecture for us, data engineers who wrangle that data, data scientists who work on that data to create insight, all the way through to designers who help people visualize what the insight is that's coming out of the models. We also have a big range of people whom we call translators who help speak between the technical teams. And the business teams, the teams who need to implement the insights on the ground and in reality. So at Quantum Black, we have quite a large technical bench. Um, and Ollie, I don't know if you just want to talk specifically about the type of technical talent we used um, in Team New Zealand.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to start with our translator. We were fortunate enough to have a guy called Henry, who was not only a semi professional sailor, he also had a PhD in optimization. So, um, sort of a rare unicorn that was absolutely perfect for this. Um, But we had a a team of data scientists, um, cloud and data architects to help set up the infrastructure that we needed. And another really important skill set that we had was a software engineer. Um, We were delivering an operational testing platform based in the cloud uh, for Team New Zealand. So it was critical that the solution that we developed was production ready.
0: So listening to all of this, can you say a little bit about what is the outcome? What's the impact of all of this? Did you achieve that the bots were better than the, the sailors?
1: We did. And in fact, in um, two-thirds of uh, the situations, our bot was actually better than, than the sailors were able to achieve in the simulator. So this was quite a remarkable achievement. And it was a wonderful moment. And it was, it was a moment when the sailors became even more interested <laughs> in the work that we were doing As it helped them eke out even more performance um, for a given design. But that's like the almost like AI assisted coaching. For the designers, we were by automating the simulator, we were able to deliver a 10x uplift in the number of designs that could be tested. So, you know, we're essentially reducing the cost of testing to zero um, to allow the design team to explore much more of the design space in their search for the optimal hydrofoil design. Maybe w- one thing to add here is that, compared to maybe a
3: traditional industrial problem, Team New Zealand here are really running against the clock. And so they are innovating at maximum speed, but with absolutely no room to delay the release of their product. And so being able to increase the, by 10x the, the rate of testing Means that we really increase the chances of them finding the best design within the time window that they have.
0: Understand. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's shift topics and just spend a few minutes on what is the relevance of this beyond sports? I don't know who wants to go first on, on that question. Helen?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to start. So I think it's actually interesting to reflect first on why elite sport organisations are such early adopters of technology. I mean, we don't just see it in sailing um, with boat design, but in Formula One with race strategy and premiership football teams predicting injuries to their players. You know, they are always at the leading edge of adopting new technology, and in this instance, machine learning technology. And really, it's because they are after that marginal performance gain. They're really willing to innovate, to get there. And so what can like, mainstream organizations learn from how they do that? I think the first thing that mainstream organizations can learn is to adopt AI well, you really have to choose something that's mission critical to you. So that may be how fast you innovate your product, what your product innovation looks like. It may be how highly performant your factories are. It may be how well you engage your customers. So what's the thing that is mission critical in your organization and that people are going to really rally around in order to make the technology successful and that will lead to the biggest performance gain? I think... The second thing is then once you have found that thing that's mission critical, how do you express that in a clear metric? Because ultimately models end up training themselves around metrics. So in sailing, the metric is velocity made good or VMG, which basically means how fast are you going in the right direction? If you are interested in product innovation, it might be how quickly is your R&D cycle working in productivity in a factory, you might be measuring how can you reduce the downtime in your equipment. So what's the metric that really matters to you? And then I think the third thing to say is, you know, how do you foster that real sense of human machine engagement? So you have augmented learning between the two. So in essence, how do you make your workforce as curious about the technology as the sailors were about the bot?
0: Thank you, Helen. Ali, would you care to, uh, to add?
2: Yeah, it's worth saying that at the heart of
1: this problem, it was, you know, it was a complex control problem. We were getting a bot to control a boat in a simulator, and the characteristics of that—you that, know—it was a complex, dynamic, and high-frequency system. It was a complex environment. There were fourteen different controls that the sailors needed to orchestrate at the same time. The optimization goals for this were quite loosely defined. You know, velocity made good speed in the direction that you should be going. And so, there are other situations where we think problems can be tackled that have these characteristics: high throughput manufacturing environments production environments such as energy generation and 5G uh, network management? And indeed, how would you rapidly respond to changes in customer preferences and tastes? So we successfully applied deep reinforcement learning on top of Team New Zealand's digital twin. And digital twins are not just found in a sailing environment. They are found in many traditional industrial settings, such as high-throughput manufacturing, other advanced industries, automotive, aerospace, and applications such as logistics. And we are excited about applying deep reinforcement learning on top of digital twins in those more traditional settings to optimize performance.
0: Let me go to Nicholas and continue this train of thought. So, Nicholas, in your experiences, can you give us a couple of other examples where you've seen AI or machine learning applied in the business world?
3: Sure. Look, I I think there are more and more examples. A lot of organizations are now quite good at maybe setting up one or two of those use cases. Examples could be next best action when you're trying to serve your customer in the best possible way. So based on what they've done before, you can recommend a new product or a new service. And a lot of that is now uh, handled quite effectively with AI. Another one is definitely on quantifying the risk of a customer, for instance, if you're a bank having very sophisticated AI models to really make sure that you are proposing the right product within the right risk tolerance to your customer. A lot of the issues we see with AI currently are more about how you scale that and how instead of just doing one or two use cases, you really want to try to do a hundred of them. And so all the effort that you put in the first one, you can't put the same effort in the next one. And, so, and that's where automation and things like MLOps, Uh, and DevOps techniques to, to really streamline the way you build and deploy those use cases becomes absolutely essential.
0: Thank you, all three of you. Now, we're going to wrap up, and I want to ask you one question, same question to each one of you, which is, if you put yourselves in the shoes of a senior executive, what is your advice to that senior executive that wants to get value from AI or machine learning? Nicholas.
3: For me, my my one-sentence answer would be making sure that you solve the right problem with the right people and the right technology. It's too easy to be carried away with very fancy technology that doesn't necessarily apply. And here we've talked about extremely fancy technology, but I would advise anyone
1: to actually start simple things first. Thank you. Ali? Mine would be be humble and upskill yourself so that you can reimagine your business. So raise the ambition level and then it would be surround yourself with the best technical talent you can find.
0: Last but not least, Helen.
2: So in my view, the barriers to value in this area are actually often not technical. They're more cultural. They're about adoption and how do you really drive frontline impact? So I would say for every dollar or hour, you spend developing the technology, spend that dollar or hour again on embedding it into your organization and really driving the frontline adoption and value.
0: Perfect. Helen, Nicholas, Ollie, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. I must admit I've learned a ton about sailing and a ton about AI as well in this last uh, half hour. Thank you so much for joining us and to everybody listening, thank you and stay tuned. Take care, everyone. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash Asia, or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.